What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And this is Doc Talk. Uh, forgive me, Matt. I was I got a little lost because we've got just looking at my notes. This is a, an incredibly packed episode. We got a, a lot to talk about. Um, as we, I was going to say, we do our Academy nominated episode, but we've never done one before, so this is all new. So I can't say. I don't know. I don't know if we can say <laughs> our or this is or we're just going to try it or this is an episode and see what you think. How's that? Whatever the case, we're going to cover the bases and make sure that we talk in depth with the nominated filmmakers in Best Documentary Feature category. So we had two on the show last week, Mr. Slav Chernoff of 20 Days in Mariupol, and we also had Nisha Pahuja of To Kill a Tiger. And so we are turning our attention to... Two directors uh, who just happened to be female and really... uh, told two stories of family, of connection, of relationships um, that were incredibly powerful and, and stylistically um, really challenging in, in their construction. Uh, first up, we're going to talk to Maite Alberti, uh, who directed The Eternal Memory, and then Kauter Ben-Hania, who directed Four Daughters. And both these filmmakers are no strangers to... Um, incredible and challenging filmmaking and filmmaking that is recognized at the highest level by their peers. We're also going to revisit our interview in the fall with the makers of Bobby Wine, the People's President, which is Oscar-nominated. We also talked with Bobby Wine himself, the Ugandan pop singer turned politician, who was the focus of that film. So we're going to revisit that episode as well coming up. But first, here's our conversation with Maite Alberti, the director of The Eternal Memory. Maite Alberti, it's so wonderful to have you on Doc Talk. Congratulations on the second Oscar nomination of your career for The Eternal Memory. Such a beautiful film, and uh, congratulations to you. Thank you very much, you became so close to your protagonists, Paulina and Augusto, as you made the eternal memory. Can you talk about the journey of the film that has ultimately led you back to the Oscars? Yeah, it has been a long journey. We shooted the film for five years, and it has been a year of promotion. And I think in documentaries, you live experience yourself as a director, and then you are sharing that experience with the audience and it has been very nice because for me it was a gift to live that love story and it has been a gift to complete the story all these years speaking with with an audience (laughs) yo soy Augusto y tú que eres yo soy la Paula nos conocemos hace más de 20 años We don't want to assume that everyone in our listening audience has seen the film. So maybe you can talk a little bit about this couple 
uh, Paulina, who was the former minister of culture in Chile, and Augusto, very prominent uh, television journalist, author. And so they're, they're well-known in Chile. And when he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's at age 62, they decided to go public with that. This is a couple that, that was well-known to the Chilean public. Yeah, it's a very well-known couple. Both were very, has been very important in Chile with very significant careers. And, and at the same time, he was a very important journalist that preserved the historical memory. And during dictatorship, making clandestine newscasts to report on everything that was happening in the country. So what we live in the film, it's also like a big paradox of this man losing this memory when he's trying to preserve it. And at the same time, it's a big lesson about how historical memory and collective memory can keep in the people and in the bodies because there are things that he never forgets. So for me, at the end, it's a big metaphor of what happened with the pain of the countries after after many years. And at the same time, it's a very particular love story because he's a person with Alzheimer that he never got desperate with Alzheimer because he's so lucky to have someone that it's always helping him to remember. And she always gave him the information that he missed. So he doesn't have that big empty space because they both construct that memory together. This film is so much about memory and knowledge and awareness. And you're dealing with two central individuals who were so well-known um, one as a reporter and a presenter, and one as an actor who became a cultural minister. And yet there's so many people like myself who have no idea about the specifics of the story. And you talk about the challenges of trying to present two well-known people without over-explaining certain things that some folks would know, and yet introducing two people who, again, to someone like myself, who have no idea of their history. Just talk about the challenges in that construction of that balance of information between um, not giving too much, not giving too little, but letting everyone know about all the information and, and also how you put it together. Yeah, it's a very good question about the balance of information because as as do you say, like Chilean people do not need the background because they are very celebrities in Chile and very well-known and important. And the question was like, how much do we need to, to explain and what do we need to explain at the end for me was information that was meaningful, not for a foreign audience, that was meaningful to understand that relationship that I realized that the public careers that they have were very connected with their love story too, because both of them after dictatorship, she fight to create a cultural polit politics and he fight to build cultural programs on the public television. So I make myself many questions about, because of course that him was obvious that we need to understand his past and the metaphor of, of memory. But my question was, do I need to present her? Because we saw her in the theater, but do we need to understand that she was a minister of culture, for example? 
But at the end, I realized that that was very necessary, not only to give the information, it was necessary because there are so many stereotypes in Latin America and in many countries of the world of women that are caregivers and that they don't have big careers and they can stay at home. Here we have like a woman with a very, very big career that stepped off her career for a while. And she said, like, I'm going to take care. I don't care about my career. And it's a so big act of generosity and to be in the present and to be connected with the present. So that was my goal to show her career. And for an actress, it's very difficult to be out of the media and out of the conversation. Like, I think it, it, it was a talent for her. But she always said something that I love that she said, like, the only way to evolve as a society is for everyone to take care of another human being on some point of our life. You, you use the word love many times in that conversation. You talk about when Paulina said, you know, how do we move forward as a society? You learn to care for someone. And it is something that, as you say, almost all of us are going to go through with a parent, with a child, with a, with a pet, with somebody that we care about. What was very interesting to me, this was a film that could have been incredibly depressing and incredibly frightening because we all go through it. There was so much love and humor and warmth. And there was something that you said in an interview where you said, look, if nothing else, maybe this film shows people that there are many different kinds of love and there are many different kinds of relationship. And when something like this happens, it's not, yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's challenging, but it doesn't have to be depressing because there, you find something new. And you talk about Paulina stepping away from her career, but stepping into something where she had more laughter and joy and love. Or did this story completely take you in, in a space that you were just... It was unexpected in that regard. Completely. It was unexpected from the beginning, like the moment that I saw them. And I saw that they were really enjoying life and enjoying the present in that situation. And it was a film that was so difficult to pitch and so difficult to get finance because it was like, yeah, it's a love story, but you you need to see it. It's not because in the paper it feels so dramatic. It's like, yeah, he's getting Alzheimer, he's losing memory, and she she's with him. And for me, it was unbelievable because in all the years that I shoot, I never feel painful in any situations and in any context. And that it's a big lesson about love. It's like all of us are going to have illness. Everybody's going to be sick, but it's not a tragedy. And I think that this film came as an answer of my previous one, that it was the mole agent, that it was terrible because it was people that was all, that was completely abandoned and completely isolated. And this is the example that I think that we need. It's like, a good relationship all these years. And she wants to take care of him because he take care of her all this year. I can understand that, that there are many women that they don't want to take care because the partners didn't take care of them <laughs> it, during their relationship. It's not an example for everybody, but in a good relationship, like it's it's the way to do it. So men treat your partners well because <laughs> it's going to come back. Oh, yeah. Of course, so relevant to the film 
the, the historical context. You've been talking about the dictatorship, and of course, that's the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. He was in power from 1973 to 1990 and installed through the offices of the CIA, deposed Salvador Allende, or certainly had a, a hand in that. And this was how Augusto and so many other people lost friends where people were disappeared, thrown out of helicopters into the ocean or into rivers in some cases. It's, it's truly appalling. And, but the, the film, again, is, is how, through his efforts, Augusto played such an important role in preserving that memory and then after the fall of Pinochet, reconnecting Chile with its past so that it, there wasn't this just complete rupture from the past, but he helped restore its cultural vitality. He said in an archive, like the Chileans, we have to reconstruct our emotional memory, not the facts, not the information. And so he's saying in a way, okay, this side can reinterpret information, they can put it out of context, but the emotion is there. Like he forget everything, but he didn't forget his pain of the loss of his friend. You cannot erase the pain of a country. And that is for all countries. Like we are going to have reinterpretations of history, but we cannot have reinterpretation of pain because pain is there. And that is the narrative that we as filmmakers, we have to build and we have to construct. It's like we have to narrate the pain to do not repeat history. Yeah. This is your second uh, Oscar nomination, as we mentioned the previous, uh, previously for The Mole Agent, El Agente Topo. Mm -hmm. I just sí. love the, the Spanish title. I can't it's say so it funny. often enough. Which made a star of Sergio, the octogenarian, wonderful guy. This will be a very different Oscar experience, I guess, in many ways, because that was kind of the pandemic year when you were nominated. And so the the ceremony was at Union Station uh, in downtown Los Angeles. So you're going to get the full experience this time. I have to say, like, I'm very excited to get the full experience, but I'm really nostalgic about the Oscar campaign of the Mole Agent that was during pandemic because I didn't move from my home and everything was online and everything was more democratic. I think in terms of, of <laughs> campaign, we didn't have any budget. It was an independent film. We didn't have to do any events. We didn't have to invite anybody. We didn't have to put posters. Like all the crazy stuff that I appreciate that I have to do now, I, I didn't do it. And it was like nice to only speak out the film from my home. I can say it's a weird situation how so fast everything came back to the antique world that I have to move from cities to another cities to events. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's weird. You have a little bit of news about the English language adaptation of the mole agent, the narrative adaptation, which is going to star. To dance on it, said here, and it's wow. so funny. Yeah, it's it's a Netflix TV series. Mike Shore is the showrunner, and yeah, it has been the dreamest uh, situation of an adaptation for me. Like 
There are some, so much things that in documentary you cannot explore because you always have the ethic limits and you can pull the comedy to some spaces that you cannot do it in the documentary. So it has been a very great and funny process. Well, that's very exciting. Um, we wish you best of success with that project. And also congratulations again on earning an Oscar nomination for the eternal memory. Maite Alberbi, it's wonderful to have you on Doc Talk. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Jan. Thank you very much. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. John, early on, as we launched Doc Talk, we spoke with the filmmakers of Bobby Wine, the people's president, the directors Moses Bueyo and Christopher Sharp. And we also spoke with Bobby Wine himself, the Ugandan pop star who was the focus of the film. He very bravely took on the president of his country, really dictator, General Yoweri Museveni, ran for president against him at the risk to his own life and a uh, great threat to his family. I don't want to claim credit. We shouldn't claim credit, I guess, for <laughs> it going on to earn an Oscar nomination, but it's a very deserving nominee. And we wanted, again, to revisit um, part of that interview. And also, we have it archived on Deadline, so please, for the full episode, just uh, search for that on Deadline.com or on uh, wherever you hear podcasts and it'll come up. If you're claiming credit for getting a nomination, that's good enough for me. <laughs> Throwing humility aside there entirely. But so let's take a listen um, to part of our interview with Moses Bueo, Christopher Sharp, the directors, and with Bobby Wine. I met Bobby first in 2017, and I actually met him in Europe. And I was just completely amazed by these people with this incredible optimism. And yet, this willingness to make these huge sacrifices, they were sacrifices genuinely for the people of Uganda. I think that what happened was Bobby grew up in a ghetto in Kampala. And then from his musical talent, as you see in the film, he's managed to extract himself from that And there he was in a situation where he had this beautiful wife, he had these beautiful children, he was living a pretty comfortable life. And then I guess he just looked back at all the people he'd left behind and he felt this is not right. I have to dedicate myself to changing their lives as well. And I think that's what makes this such a beautiful story in Bobby and Barbie. You've got these two people who are genuine African heroes and they were willing to make this great sacrifice for their country. Bobby has always been this consistent musician, as long as I can remember. Every five years in Uganda, there is an election, and Museveni pays off artists to sing him like a big campaign song. 
And as long as I can remember, Bobby has been that one artist who never joins that group. His music has been for the common man and uplifting the youth and offering hope. So he's been this consistent musician. So in some ways, I wasn't surprised when he was championing the change and asking for people to to rise up and to get involved. It's been a blessing that he uh, allowed us to capture this story of him on the front line as he was leading the revolution. Bobby, were there any parts of your life that you, you didn't really want the filmmakers to go into? Or were you just like, hey, whatever, whatever you want to film... Of course, there are a few parts of my life that I didn't want to become. <laughs> I didn't want anybody to see me crying. No, I want people to think I am a tough guy. But I'm probably not as tough as, <laughs> as I would love to be. So I didn't want anybody to see me crying. I'm glad many of the crying bits were not included in the film. <laughs> and last but not least, the fifth nominated film, Four Daughters. We are joined today by the director of a film that I thought was truly amazing and elliptical in its approach. And one of the things, and one of the reasons I, I say this all the time, I love doing Doc Talk. I know so little and I get to learn so much. The director of this film, uh, she was also, uh, had a film that was selected as a Tunisian in- entry for the Best Foreign Language Film, the 91st Academy Awards. That was Beauty and the Dogs. And her 2020 film, The Man Who Sold the Skin, was also nominated for Best International Feature Film at the 93rd Academy Awards. So she's no stranger to the, the Oscar dance. And her new film is just as beautiful and just as powerful. Welcoming to the show is the director, uh, Kalther bin Hania. Welcome to the program. As a top level to the film, it's the story of a mother who lost two of her four daughters to indoctrination um, to ISIL, the Islamic State. One could hear that and say, well, this is a story that is only particular to the Middle East. It's only particular to a type of radicalization. But in this story, you realize this really is the story about a parent who is struggling with a child who is acquiring independence, learning to be rebellious, this could happen in the Middle East. This could happen in rural America. This could happen anywhere. So much of this that was about parenting, um, paternal parenting when there is not a paternal structure, and really just about women being women and a spectrum, not Middle East. These are women who are, are locked into uh, a religious system. These ladies are the gamut of humanity. And that was just incredibly powerful in this entire film. And then you can just get into how you put it together, because that's another mind blower in and of itself. Thank you for mentioning this, uh, because I'm happy that you say this, because people view uh, always uh, other people like uh, not like very different. But in reality, me, I'm living between two continents, uh, coming from an Arab Muslim culture. When you talk about uh, daughters, we know what is it. It's a shared uh, human things. 
when we talk about mother-daughter relationship, we know what is it. We talk about trauma also, we know what is it. So all those elements were there, hidden behind the headlines, behind the story. Because when I discovered this story, it was in 2016, and the mother, Olfa, made public the story of her daughters. She was um, on TV, radio, uh, on Tunisia to talk about her daughters. But what is great with movies and literature that it gives us the possibility to to understand better, to dive behind the, the headline of the news and to see, to understand why the tragedy happened. And when we try to understand, we find uh, this shared humanity that everybody can understand. Everyone can understand it. And again, one of the things that I think was really amazing about this film, or just in general, uh, a documentary that can be more than just its top-line subject matter. I, I knew nothing about Tunisia. Nothing. And the only thing that I even kind of knew was was truly about two days earlier, uh, my son came to me and said he wanted to do volunteer work. And he either said Tunisia or Tanzania. I'm not afraid to admit my ignorance about things anymore. So there was a level where it was just an opportunity to go, oh, here's Tunisia. And here's things I learned about the Arab Spring and about this cultural uprising and where it is and that it is not a, a quote-unquote hard Islamic state. But obviously, those feelings and those things around that region. But within that, as the film started, I felt like, oh, okay, this is about um, Hajib is, is, is very central to this. Um, and I thought, oh, this is going to be about Muslim women. But this really was, to a degree, also about gender identity and about identity and about a woman who had to or felt she had to take on a patriarchal role to protect herself in a very male-dominated society. There's one story that's almost very funny on her wedding night where they have to show blood on the sheets and the blood on the sheets. I'm not going to give it away. It's there, but it's not how one tra traditionally find it. My question is, you know, you, you said that you heard about the story, but there's things in the story with Olaf, uh, is that her name? Olfa. Where she is dominating as a mother and taking on a patriarchal role, it's very honest and it's very raw. How much of that did you learn once you started this documentary? And in learning that, obviously you remained objective and it was in and it's powerful. Did it change your perception of, oh, this wasn't just ISIL individuals coming in. This was young ladies looking to find their identity. You know, when I started this project, I wanted to understand, because even being a, a Tunisian, uh, I mean, the majority of Tunisians don't understand how a young person is attracted by the call of death, you know. We can label things, we can say, ah, oh, it's because ignorance, or it's because... But I wanted to have a, a deeper understanding of why I tried to have to put aside all my judgment and to understand and to hear from them. And I was like, uh, I had another life, more difficult life, didn't uh, finish my studies. I can be them, you know, in a way. And what I discovered uh, when I put, put aside my um, prejudgment was really counterintuitive because, as you said, it's because they are teenagers 
and they weren't happy with their life, with their mother in this very poor neighborhood, the oppression that their mother representing the patriarchal culture putting on them. For them, it was like a reinverse or put aside the 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 pressure of their mother to become stronger than their mother in a way and to break free even if freedom can mean for them death in a way you know so it's very counterintuitive to see a person joining uh, uh, ISIS because he's yearning for more freedom it's uh, sad but at the time in this particular uh, moment in Tunisia, the, the only offer they had. And so the the oldest daughters, the two eldest daughters are are imprisoned in Libya now. And uh, so you didn't have access to them for your documentary. We planned to go to shoot. I spoke to them a lot on the phone. Uh, but uh, a day before the shooting, the Libyan uh, told us not to come. <laughs> so I sent my fixer. Uh, and he brought to me the three shots at the end of the movie. Right, and the eldest daughter is raising a child behind bars, which is amazing in and of itself. But you made this remarkable choice to incorporate actors in the film. Um, a very famous actress, Hin Shabri, is, plays Olfa in a number of scenes. And then there are two actresses who play the, the missing daughters who are as I say, in Libya now. At what stage did you decide to take that approach? You obviously have a, this grounding in narrative fictional work, but it's a, real, uh, it's a big leap within documentary to take that kind of approach. Yeah, because as I told you, I started by thinking about the more conventional uh, uh, verité documentary. Um, but quickly I realized that this form is not the right form for this story because this story... To tell this story, uh, I need to uh, go to the past. The past is not available anymore. So I was thinking about this well-known cliche of reenactment. Uh, I don't like reenactment, but I was thinking that maybe it's better to start with a cliche than to end up with one. So I took this reenactment thing and I I hijacked it. I thought that maybe I can do something like a Brechtian theater where... Uh, we can play a scene where they bring this memory to life and then they go go out uh, from this scene and they think about the, this memory with a kind of distance. So when I had this idea of bringing actors, it was obvious that it was the better f- um, the best form to tell this story because of its complexity and multi-layered aspect and the fact that there is a dance between the past and the present. There is this discussion and all the introspective journey uh, of Olfa and her daughters during the shooting uh, needed something like this. Just fascinating scenes between Olfa herself, the, the mother, and Hin Sabri, the, the actress, because I think they're both very strong presences, both very compelling, but very different people. And so I think Hen really has a very hard time understanding Olfa's behavior and how, as a mother, she physically, you know, beat uh, her kids, or or certainly uh, the older kids, Raham and Gofran. 
And so those conversations become so fascinating as the actress tries to understand, well, how am I going to play this role if I don't understand this woman? Yeah, that's why I needed uh, a surrogate uh, <laughs> Olfa to access Olfa, you know. That's why I brought Hans Sabri. She was really amazing. And it was a very risky part for her because uh, uh, she's out of her comfort zone. She's expressing herself. It's also a documentary about her being on work, you know. For me, the, the difference between the two women was paramount because Olfa is so emotional and Hendy is so rational. She, she wants to understand. And for me, she was the perfect person to shed light into the other as complex aspect, flawed aspect of Olfa. Olfa is fan of Hind. Hind is a kind of star in the region, but their relationship on the set uh, was really um, a relationship where there was no fascination. You know, Olfa was she's not impressed by by Hind, and Hind was scared of Olfa, you know, <laughs> because she will play the part of a person that is watching her. So this was really very, uh, very interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that because there is this sort of meta levels on top of levels on top of levels. And there's a moment in the documentary where there is an actor who is uh, a male actor who's playing one of the patriarchal figures in the story. And one of the daughters is talking about how this person that the actor is playing abused her. And it's already very powerful. She has a knife in hand in the scene. She, she's reliving a memory. The actor is helping her act through it. But as she's talking through it, if I'm understanding everything, the, the male actor at a moment says, well, I, I can't play this. I can't deal with this right now. And he gets up and walks off the set. And the young lady remains talking about, well, why is he walking away? I'm dealing with it. He's helping me. And then also she's just playing with the knife in the whole scene. My question is, and it's more just how you deal with this, because I've certainly been on sets where it's challenging enough dealing with an actor in a moment. Not that they're, they're being difficult, but you, know, you, you can't just treat an individual as a racehorse. You have to help them get there, and sometimes they get there right away, and sometimes you have to work through it. But when you're dealing with, in that moment, the individual, that actor is there you know, as a therapeutic, but he's acting as an actor, it ends up being an amazing scene, but how do you deal with it in the moment where it's like, I can't deal with you as an actor right now. I need you as a therapeutic. Don't go to Actorville. And yet you end up with something that, out of many, many scenes, that certainly stands out to me in an incredibly powerful film. How I deal with this? I was scared to death. Because, you know, it's documentary. You, you never know how things will go, in which direction. <laughs> so I'm the first first audience of my own movie, you know. <laughs> I was just telling them, uh, uh, Aya, he's playing the part of, uh, he's playing all the male part on the movie, by the way, uh, this uh, same actor. This is uh, the guy who abused you. Talk to him, tell him wherever you want, you know. And she was amazing. She had this strength and, uh, and the actor wasn't expecting this, neither me, you know. So he quit because, as you say, <laughs> he told me, I'm not up to this. I'm not a therapist. I don't know how, what to say. You know, I'm an actor. I'm used to deal with character written on paper, not on, on real with real people. And her reaction after he left, because she was like 
insisting, saying, I want this scene to be in the movie. It's important that my story be heard. And she was even playing with us when she said, he's an actor, so tell him I'm also an actress, and this is a dialogue, so he can come back. (laughs) (laughs) She would be a great director, if nothing else. Um, Sometimes strength can be a pejorative, I think, when you use that around women. But she was there, and she was present, and she could deal with it. And, And one thing, there's one line in particular in this film that just sat with me as a parent. The mother says about one of the daughters that she lost, you know, when, when she talks about how strong, you know, again, strong is a bit of a pejorative, but I tried to teach my daughter all these things. And like any child, they flip on you. But she said, I taught my daughter to aim and she shot me. That fear of a parent, you know, I want, I want to give them the correct push, but do I push them too far? And do I push them in the wrong direction? Yeah, and this saying, uh, it's a, a, a poetry um, a part of ancient Arabic, and we use it as a, <laughs> as a saying, you know, to describe the situation. I think she, she understood then that she is, they are just acting like her, being as uh, cruel as her, as, as strong as her. So she was using this sentence to qualify their relationship. الفيلم هذا باش نحاول نحكي حكيت بنت ألفا ألفا عندها أربع بنات هذيك المصيبة لا أني من نكره الطفلة وكل ما نحبش ما حبتش نجيب حتى الطفلة <تصفيق> So you will be returning to the Oscars. As John mentioned, you were nominated. Your film, The Man Who Sold His Skin, was nominated for Best International Film in 2021. And you'll be sort of reunited with Maite Alberti, the director of The Eternal Memory. She was nominated. Exactly. We were together uh, in 2021. She was with the mole uh, agent and me with the man who sold his skin in two different categories. And now we are in the same category. Well, we congratulate you, Kauta Benhania, on the film. It is so remarkable, as John's been saying. I, I echo him and, and just uh, marveling at, at what you've accomplished with the film, Four Daughters. Thank you so much for joining us on Doc Talk. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, it's very exciting for all of the filmmakers who were nominated for Oscars in the Best Documentary Feature category. So great to speak with them. John, does it get your heart racing? You think about what these filmmakers are going through. You have been through it. <laughs> all I, the buildup. Oh, my goodness. Bad for them. That's all I can say. I'm <laughs> um, happy for anybody, positive peer review, the people who do what you do and understand it and, and them finding value in your work is amazing um but it's they don't typically hand you an award so i don't know what to say i don't want to sound jaded it's an amazing thing but it's i'm happy for these folks i'm just gonna leave it at that matt i'm just gonna say march i'm I'm happy for them big day it was the big ceremony one of these uh, filmic one or more because there's a co-directing team in the case of bobby wine will become a first-time Oscar winner. So that's very exciting. And so it won't be too long. Yeah, I mean, enjoy it. Enjoy the day. Enjoy being um, part of an amazing uh, afternoon and evening and uh, a nice fellowship, as I've said before, the Academy. 
does amazing things behind the scenes. They don't get a lot of credit for. So it, it's a, a great night. And I, I do congratulate uh, all the nominees and, you know, and for all the people in all the categories that felt snubbed or, you know, we see these articles, why didn't this person get it or that or whatever? There's no rhyme or reason. And you got to be proud of what you did. But it is special if you get the opportunity. So have a great, have a great evening. I, I will be somewhere else doing some other thing. <laughs> I can promise you. Well, I'll be very eager to see. We'll be, we'll be watching and covering I'm, for sure. I'm eager to read what your wrap-up is. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be eager to dive into That'll be the episode after that. I'm eager to see that. But yeah, um, absolutely. it was great to talk to all these folks. And as always, we hope that we'll be able to talk with everybody again next week on Doc Talk. Mm-hmm.